0: The readings this morning are from Deuteronomy chapters 1 to 3. It will be various excerpts. And after an introduction, I shall be starting at chapter 1, verse 6, which is page 178. So just some information to set the scene beforehand. The time uh, that I'm going to be reading from is around 1240 B.C., And the place is on the plain on the eastern side of the river jordan opposite jericho the people are the israelites who 40 years before had been liberated from slavery in egypt but through disobedience had spent the intervening time wandering in the wilderness and the situation is that moses is reminding them of their history their covenant with god and his purposes that through them He would reach all nations, as he had promised Abraham around 2000 B.C. So Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 6. The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring people in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their descendants after them. Moses had then appointed their leaders in verses 9 to 18. Canaan, the promised land, had been scouted 19-25, to and while the Lord promised to be with them to defeat the inhabitants, the people of Israel bottled out. Too big a challenge for them when they lacked faith in God to keep his promises. For that lack of trust, God said only two adults of that generation, Joshua and Caleb, would enter the land. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until the adults of the rebellious generation had died. Now it is time to move north from Elath and Ezion Geber, Eliet and Coral Island today, but to go up what is the Jordanian side of the Arava, possibly going through Wadi Rum. First they will defeat the king of Heshbon and then the king of Bashan before dividing up the conquered territory. So Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 24 to 25. Set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. See, I have given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. This very day I will begin to put the terror and fear of you on all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. And verse 30. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, refused to let us pass through. For the Lord your God had made his spirit stubborn, and his heart obstinate, in order to give him into your hands, as he has now done. The Lord said to me, See, I have begun to deliver Sihon and his country over to you, now begin to conquer and possess his land. When Sihon and all his army came out to meet us in battle at Jehaz, the Lord our God delivered him over to us, and we struck him down, together with his sons and his whole army. At that time, we took all his towns and completely destroyed them, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Chapter 3, verse 1. Next we turned and went up along the road towards Bashan and, and Og king of Bashan with his whole army marched out to meet us in battle at Edre. The Lord said to me, do not be afraid of him for I have handed him over to you with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon king of the Amorites who reigned in Heshbon. So the Lord our God also gave into our hands Og, king of Bashan, and all his army. We struck them down, leaving no survivors. And then we know that Moses didn't get to enter the promised land. Verse 23. At that time, I pleaded with the Lord, O sovereign Lord, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth, who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country and Lebanon. But because of you the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me any more about this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and look west and north and south and east. Look at the land with your own eyes, since you are not going to cross this Jordan. But commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead this people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. So he stayed in the valley near Peth This is the word of the Lord.
1: Deuteronomy isn't the... That Moses gave the book, he just gave it the words, and uh, you might wonder where that comes from. Well, in fact, it comes. It was called Deuteronomy from about 300 BC, um, when the Greek community, the Greeks spread throughout. uh, Sorry, the Jews spread throughout the world. Alexander the Great had conquered most of Eastern Mediterranean and the ancient Near East, and so Greek became the dominant language. And the Greek community in Alexandria translated the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language. And Jutero is two, and Nomos is law in Greek. And since the book is about the second reading of the law, that's why it got the name. So just uh, for us to kind of get the big sort of historical and geographical picture, you remember that um, the Israelites were... um, slaves in egypt and they were miraculously and wonderfully liberated from that and they went from ramesses to succoth they're the only two places we know for certain on the journey to mount sinai down here but they would have uh, crossed there, there um what's called the reed sea reed sea and red sea are the same word in hebrew yamsuf and so it's much more likely that we're to picture a miracle nonetheless of a kind of reed area where the tide goes out and the wind holds it back for quite a while um, so that they could get across but not long enough for Pharaoh to get across rather than if you picture the Charlton-Heston Ten Commandments um, from the 1960s where it looks like the English Channel has just been separated. So they then go down um, the eastern side of what is the Red Sea to Jebel Musa, which is Mount Sinai, or actually it's called Mount Horeb throughout most of uh, Deuteronomy. It's an incredibly beautiful place, the desert. And uh, there you see it there. After Mount Sinai, they then uh, moved, after they were first of all given the law and Moses read it to them, they moved uh, to um, up this part, the Gulf of Aqaba, Uh, today is Elat and Akaba, and they go up here and then they go to Kadesh Barnea, where they were um, uh, where they settled for a while and they were shown, they sent out spies to see the land of Israel and the land of Canaan, as it was then we'll come to that in a sec, but when they actually went into the from Kadesh Barnea, which is That's Kadesh Barnea today. A little bit of water enables you to live in an area that's very, very arid. But um, when the spies came back from having visited the land of Canaan and the Valley of Eshkol in particular, and they had seen how um, plenteous it was in terms of agricultural uh, benefits, but they came back reporting that the people who lived there were really big and they were frightened of them. Now, even though they had miraculously, they'd seen God at work getting them out of Israel, out of, out of Egypt, um, and he'd promised that he would enable them, if they just went in and fought, he would give them the land. They bottled it. They, know they didn't have enough faith or trust in God to do what he wanted them to do. And so as a consequence, as sort of this discipline, that particular generation of adults were not to enter the Promised Land. Hence, they spent the next 40 years wandering around the desert as a consequence. Well, eventually, they, um, they left, leave Kadesh Barnea and they go over towards Eden. They go down this rift valley. You probably know there's a rift valley that goes all the way ultimately from the Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, all the way down through the Dead Sea, through here, the Red Sea, all the way down East Africa to Kenya in the great rift valley there. But this is, uh, the Arabar is, uh, is this part of the rift valley. And they go to Edom, first of all, and then they go down to um, Elat, and then they go up probably through Wadi Rum, which is a big area, and they go past Edom and Moab. They don't actually go and conquer Edom and Moab because God, just to demonstrate how he keeps his word, um, that Edom was promised to Esau and his descendants and Moab was promised to Lot and his descendants. So they go round until they get up to this area here where they have a couple of um, big... uh, Battles where they start to sort of uh, conquer what is to them the promised land because it is some of it is part of east of the Jordan. Well, just so you get some idea of what it's like that is uh, the area south of the Dead Sea on the way to Aqaba, and without any irrigation, absolutely nothing would grow. That is Azong Gabir, which is uh, known as Pharaoh's Island or Coral Island. It was it is where you can see the, a tiny little harbour. That is where Solomon had his uh, base for exporting his minerals that he um, um, dug up in the Sinai. And, uh, and so there we are, back up here. And this is where they're doing some uh, fighting. And that is, they would have gone via body rum, which is a very impressive area of 278 square miles. Even more impressive when you have the sunset. And we're here, Heshbon. And it's the northern end of the Dead Sea. It's 20 miles east of Jericho, the other side of the Jordan. You can dig it up today and you'll discover where it was in the 13th century, the same place. And um, then they move up and they wallop the next king, which is uh, in, uh, uh, they have a battle at Edri, which is where Golan is today. And that valley there, the Yamuk River, divides today what is Jordan here, from Israel there to the Golan Heights, which are occupied territory under the United Nations today, and Syria is there. And if you look from this picture, you would see the Israeli crocodile farm down there. We're in Jordan here. The Sea of Galilee is there. The Golan Heights are there. And Syria is just around the corner. So, they then return to a place called Abel Shittim, which is um, just at the very top. I have a slight technical difficulty this morning, but never mind. And... Um, That's where they were. That's where Moses read to them the law for the second time. And he himself went to the top of Mount um, Pisgah, which is otherwise known as Mount Nebo, and he saw much of what was the land that was going to be given to his people. But he himself would not go in because he had disobeyed God um, in another incident in the Old Testament and the people are down in that plain below. And from there, it's probably about uh, 15, 16 miles to Jericho. Now, some people love history and some people hate it, Um, but history is important because we learn from the past to improve the future. George Santayana said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it steve turner the christian poet says history repeats itself has to nobody listens and winston churchill famously said those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it so what here moses is doing is he is reading out the law a second time so that all the kids who have grown up since they left Egypt, who were children at the time of the Exodus, that they will hear it and they will enter this land and they would uh, follow in the ways of the Lord, which, as we'll see, were very alien to to the way in which the inhabitants of that land were living. And the particular lesson for us today would be that each new generation has to establish its own covenant with God. Or as someone once said, God has no grandchildren. It is a great privilege to be brought up in Christian families where you have the faith taught to you and you have it exhibited. And to do so is a benefit. But we have to embrace the faith For ourselves, when we come to an age of understanding and responsibility, whenever that happens to be. So, they've been wandering around this desert for forty years, and um, they're about to enter the Promised Land, the land that God had promised to Abraham. Two thousand B.C., seven hundred years before. Now, for 40 years, they'd been on their own. The land that they were to enter had inhabitants who lived appallingly. If you think ISIL and then make it worse, if you could possibly conceive of that, that's what the people living in the land at that time were like. And the Israelites were not to be like them. What's more, Moses, their leader, was not going to be joining them although he was, of course, a prophet. And he wanted, before he died, to make sure they were in a position that they knew what God's plans and purposes and way to live were. And here again we see the pattern of rescue that goes throughout the Bible. Um, It is rescue and then instruction. God displays his grace And then says how in gratitude his people should live. These situations that they were in were humanly impossible. In both cases, getting out of Egypt, um, getting into the promised land, in both cases, God acts. He delivers, but He expects. It isn't the other way around. It's not follow the law and then God delivers. No, it is grace first, and then gratitude. Grace from God, and then gratitude from us. So God would part the River Jordan. The River Jordan in the winter is bigger, uh, is wider. But of course today, because so much of the, the Sea of Galilee is taken out for irrigation, the size of the River Jordan is significantly shrunk. And here is the baptismal site reputedly of Jesus and uh, the the girl on at the bottom is in Jordan and she's looking at the tourists in Israel. Well anyway, they then go on to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebor, which is where Nablus is today, and the blessings and the curses are repeated. So Deuteronomy was spoken by Moses in the last week of his life as, he, as the new generation of Israelites was camped east of the Jordan just before they went in and conquered the land of Canaan. Now in the ancient Near East, if one king defeated another, um, the victor, and victors always write history, they would draw up a treaty between the greater, the king, the suzerain, and the lesser, the vassal. And these were known as suzerainty treaties. Basically, if the defeated nation behaved themselves, didn't rebel, didn't withhold tribute, paid their taxes, the conquering king would protect them. But if they misbehaved, he would punish them. Now, these treaties were common among the nations around Canaan, particularly in Egypt, and were widespread in use uh, until about uh, 1200 BC in other words till just after the exodus and the conquest of Canaan now Moses who you may remember had a royal education in Pharaoh's household would have doubtless been familiar with them so he uses them as a way to explain the covenant between his people and their god since God is their ruler and they are his subjects. So, if you'll be patient, this is an example of a Hittite vassal treaty um, between the Hittites and the uh, king of Aleppo. We have Musili II of the Hittites, who's the suzerain; he's the victor, and Talmi Sharuma of Aleppo in northern Syria, who is the vassal and it's written in what's called cuneiform, which is just wedge-shaped writing, and it's written in a form that is Akkadian, and it regulates the relationship between the two kingdoms. This is a treaty between the powerful king of the Hittites, the suzerain in present-day Turkey, and the weaker king of Aleppo, the vassal in northern Syria today. And it establishes Hittite dominance over Aleppo. And it includes a historical background to the treaty described in the earlier activity between the Hittites and the Syrians. So you end up with this as a structure. And you have a a preamble where you identify who the suzerain and who the vassal are. You have a historical prologue reviewing the relationship between the two in the period leading up to the treaty in which, of course, the suzerain says how, um, how good he is. Well, he's writing it, isn't he? And then you have the stipulations, obligations laid on the vassal by the suzerain to be loyal. There are general and there are detailed. And then there are blessings and curses, rewards for keeping the treaty, punishment for breaking it. Then there's provision for renewal of the treaty and instructions for its regular renewal and public reading. And then there are witnesses. They called their various deities to uh, witness. And Deuteronomy has a similar structure to these Hittite suzerainty treaties. All this would then be signed, sealed and settled over a meal between the king, the suzerain and his subject, the vassal. And the sanctions or curses in the treaty are a key part of the book and they're played out in later Old Testament history. There are sanctions, there are natural sanctions, and there are military sanctions. So, for example, if you um, remember your O-level geography, that Mediterranean climates have warm, wet westerly winds in winter and hot, dry summers, then you know that um, what happens is that in the summer, it's really hot in Israel. This is Jerusalem, which is cooler and, uh, and has more rain than other parts, but it can get up to 50 Celsius. So in the summer, they have no rain between, or about sort of April until about October. So it's vital for them that those westerly winds in the winter come in. Now, in the days of Elijah, when the people were adrift from God, God so arranged the, the weather that they didn't come in. In their place, you get hot, dry winds off the Saudi Peninsula, which deliver no water and you have three years of famine. There were military sanctions as well. The Assyrians here later on were used by God to punish the Israelites. You can read all about them in um, the British Museum in that sort of um, prism of Sennacherib there. And, but what is really significant is important, and what you probably noticed when it was read, that both in chap- the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three, When they are attacking uh, Heshbon and Edri, they are told, we left no survivors. We struck them down, leading no survivors. Now, if you think about it, if they had massacred every Canaanite going, there would have been no Canaanites left, but there clearly are in the days of Elijah, as they are quite a strong and dominant force. But leaving the kind of absolute literalism aside, they did nonetheless slaughter many people in order to gain what was the promised land for them. So how do we try and square that? Is the God of the Old Testament a merciless monster? How could a compassionate God order such, well, you'd call it genocide today, I guess? And the critics of Christianity and of God are very quick to point out to us passages in Deuteronomy. Take Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favour. Towards them. And it's, you can, there are other parts of Deuteronomy, like chapter 20, verse 16, where that again is uh, repeated. In his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins writes a scathing description of the God that he reads in the Old Testament. He writes, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now... That is also echoed by other atheists. Charles Templeton writes, the God of the Old Testament is utterly unlike the God believed in by most practising Christians. His justice is, by modern standards, outrageous. He is biased, garrulous, vindictive, and jealous of his prerogatives. Well, does the Old Testament paint a picture of God as nothing more than a cosmic bully who is ready to end the lives of anyone who gets on the wrong side of him? The answer to these questions are pretty critical because Christians today are quick, and rightly so, to tell unbelievers about a God who is merciful, patient, forgiving, and slow to anger. So is there a disconnect between what Christians profess about God and what is actually recorded in much of the first 39 books of the Bible. Now this is a tough call, but I think it is possible to reconcile this judgment of God with God's loving mercy. After all, if there is a God, he has the right to define morality, to define what is right and wrong. The first human beings rebelled against him and their punishment was exclusion. They didn't want anything to do with him, he allowed them to go. As a consequence of exiting paradise, they would die. They didn't die immediately, but they did die spiritually because they were not connected with God, then they would die physically, and then they would die eternally. Now, God was there exercising a degree of mercy because they did not immediately die. He wanted Adam and Eve and others to come to their senses and return to him. What we have here is people doing the most appalling things, such as, just to give you one example, they would, they would throw their own babies alive onto a fire as a sacrifice, as an offering to somehow placate or persuade the false god they believe in to do what they wanted done. Now amazingly, the true God of the world did not immediately destroy such people for doing such things. In fact, he was also merciful to them. He waited until they got so bad that their behaviour didn't deserve for them to live anywhere on his earth. It was so alien to him. For example, while speaking to Abraham, remember 700 years before these events, about the future exodus of Israel from Egypt, God says the following about the Israelite and the Amorite peoples. Then in the fourth generation, they, the Israelites, will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So they had 700 years to change their minds and repent of these barbaric practices, but they chose not to. In fact, they got worse. They therefore received their just punishment and the Israelites were authorised by God to carry it out. But what about the killing of children? Critics um, uh, point out that in the invasion that uh, happened, you know, women and children also lost their lives. Well, a number of things should be understood First of all, in a typical Israelite rules of engagement were included um, a warning and a declaration that in so many days they were gonna invade a place so that women, children, the elderly, and others who wished could easily flee far ahead and before the military attack came. Only those who or whose parents stubbornly remained would face war and its outcome. Second, in the case of the Amalekites, the entire culture had been so corrupted by the sin of the adults, that from the perspective of eternity, there was no hope for any child who was left behind in that kind of culture. Now the Bible, even in these early parts, in the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel 12, speaks of the fact that any child who dies before they know enough to be morally accountable before God are taken to be with him. King David, at the time of the death of his infant son, says to Samuel 12:22, he answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So while some children may have been killed in war, they were ultimately saved by God from becoming what their parents were. And lastly, socially and physically, the fate of children throughout history and today has always rested with their parents. Whether they were in good hands in the case of Noah or in bad hands in the case of Amalek. The actions of the parents were the final determinant in the earthly well being of the children. But I wonder whether our generation can claim the moral high ground. There are some things, like in war, when the Iraqis and the Kurds and Western forces recaptured Mosul, the children of ISIL fighters were there and they would have been killed when the attack to recapture took place. Similarly and sadly, Iraqis who were nothing to do with ISIL but who were trapped there would have also got killed. We're not unfamiliar with what happens in war. But I wonder also whether the the views of secular humanists which dominate our thinking and which particularly tend to push things like euthanasia and abortion are quite so kind of squeaky clean as they might think they are. Personally, I think it is truly horrific that 200,000 children in England each year that's 20%, a fifth of all pregnancies, are deliberately terminated. Future generations, I think, will look on us as we look on the transatlantic slave trade of 250 to 400 years ago. And they will think, how is it that we allowed such things to happen? Now when we read Deuteronomy, we have to realise that it is a mirror image of what's going on in Canaan. What Deuteronomy warns them not to do was already going on in that land. And briefly you can summarise it in terms of immorality, injustice and idolatry. And very briefly, idolatry is just simply um, a religion of their own invention where the gods give them spurious legitimacy for their own preferred and perverse behaviour. Now all of this is to be understood within the context of God's grand plan. Israel here is poised to enter the promised land. Promised because 700 years before, God promised it to Abraham, Genesis 12, which is foundational. It is set at a time when sin was running out of control. The world had been created good and perfect by God, Genesis 1, but ever since the fall when Adam and Eve and others ditched God, Genesis 3, the world had degenerated into a squalid wasteland of murder, sexual immorality, conspiracy and deceit. Indeed, things were so appalling that God would have been quite justified in simply wiping everyone out and starting all over again, which, of course, we know he did in the days of Noah at the time of the flood. In fact, a God who did not act in judgment against such appalling behaviour and unjust suffering caused to people could hardly be described as loving and just if he failed to get involved, if he ignored such inflicted suffering. But in Genesis 12, God appears to Abraham and graciously promises him three things, which will one day enable humankind's restoration to peace with God. First, Abraham will have many descendants. They will be blessed and they will have their own land stretching up the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And out of that land will come the one who is enabled to restore the relationship between human beings, and God. So over time, God begins to fulfil these promises. Abraham's descendants start to increase. In fact, they grow so numerous, the Egyptians enslave them. But God keeps his promise, and he rescues them most remarkably from Egypt, and they are now poised at the borders of the Promised Land. Sadly, they are disobedient, and so had been disciplined for 40 years delay in the hope that they would amend their ways and a fresh start would be possible. Now the time of discipline has finished and Israel is back on track, God's track, to receive the fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham as they prepare to enter Canaan. Now that track record of God's, where he's promised something and he keeps his promise even though Phenomenal obstacles are put in his way of achieving it. Nonetheless, he does achieve it. And that gives us confidence as we ourselves await our entry to our promised land. First heaven, and then the new heaven and the new earth merge together to be as it was at the beginning when God walked with man and woman in the Garden of Eden. Paradise lost, will one day be paradise regained. Amen.